So today we continue our series uh, that's called Who's Your Shepherd? And uh, it's a study of uh, the 23rd Psalm. And uh, each week we're going to read the 23rd Psalm in a different translation. Uh, and that's in part to just remind us that people translate the Bible and they translate it in different ways. And sometimes we need to hear things differently in order to hear things differently in our own lives, right? So today we're going to read uh, the 23rd Psalm and maybe some of your favorites uh, translation, the King James Version. This I've heard people say this is the one that God gave to the church uh, you know, originally. That's a little bit of a joke, but uh, uh, anyway, let's read uh, the 23rd Psalm together. Uh, join with me, please. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be on you. Because you are our rock and our redeemer. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So who's your shepherd? It's an opportunity for us to think about who is the one that is leading our lives. And this is a critical issue for us because uh, uh, it's one of those things that we maybe don't think about enough, but it's also one of those things that we should think about a lot more. And let me illustrate it this way. When I was in seminary over at SMU, I met a lot of people there. One of the people that I met was a, a younger man who was an undergraduate at SMU studying there, and we became friends. And uh, he had some what I would call quirky mannerisms about him. Uh, he would say things that, were, that just didn't fit. You know, you've been around somebody where you know, you're in a conversation and they say something and you're like, where did that come from? I don't get that, right? He said those things kind of regularly, and they were kind of similar things that he would say. And I was like, where's he getting that from? And one of the other things that he had was he had this scarf that he wore. It was a wool scarf. It was obviously a handmade scarf. At least it was a handmade scarf. I shouldn't say obviously a handmade scarf because I've seen some handmade scarves that are really immaculate and beautiful. But this was a handmade scarf that I would make that, that wouldn't be that nice and beautiful, right? But he wore it all the time. In fact, I began to wonder if he wore it to bed with him or not, because he wore it all the time. He wore it even in the hot days. Even when the weather was hot outside, he wore this scarf. And let me tell you, you spend a little bit of time around him, and you find out this guy stinks because of the scarf. He took the scarf off one time, and, and he gave it to me to look at, and I'm like, oh, man, this has got a reek to it, right? Well, I was visiting with another friend of his at another, another day, and the scarf came up. And we were talking about the scarf, and I said, well, what is the deal with the scarf? He says, you don't know? I said, no, I got no clue. Uh, he said, well, he's a big fan of Doctor Who. And I said, who? 
right? Now, this was back in the early 80s, right? And Doctor Who had started this, this TV show, been going on for a little while, BBC, right? And it's really grown and it's been emphasized and it's been remade a bunch of times. But this was back in the original versions. And, and, and the guy said, yeah, Doctor Who. The, he loves Doctor Who. And so I went and I watched an episode of Doctor Who. And I, I, as I'm watching them, I go, hey, that's this guy. He's got the scarf, the mannerisms that he does, they're all from Doctor Who. And it, it, it makes me, made me ask the question, who is he trying to be? And that's the question I would ask you today. Who are you trying to be? Who are you trying to be? You see, who you are becoming has everything to do with how you are investing in yourself. And it has everything to do with the things that you watch on television, the things that you look at on your computer, the way you spend your time. Well, there are a lot of things, but, but how are you investing in you? Because that tells a lot about who you're going to become. And becoming somebody has everything to do with following the right shepherd. Are you following the right shepherd? In the church, we say that Jesus is our shepherd. He's the one who shepherds us. He's the one that leads us. He's the one that is leading our lives uh, because he's the only one that can bring fulfillment to our lives. It's, a, it's why we have this why statement in our church. Maybe you haven't heard it in a while, but our why statement is based on the, the answer to the question, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need Jesus? And here's our why statement, because everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart that only Jesus can fill. That's why we have a why statement, because everybody has a God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill. It's why we have a related to that mission statement. The mission of Lighthouse Fellowship is to make Christ followers who change the world. And the reason we want to make Christ followers is because if, if somebody is a follower of Jesus, then, then they are, become a changed person. I am a changed person because of Jesus Christ every single day. And because Jesus changes me, if I can help somebody else find Jesus, then Jesus is going to change them too. And as a result of this effort that we give by the power of the Holy Spirit, people get changed, and through that change, the world changes as well. Everybody, I think, in this room would say, yeah, I really want to change the world. Well, the only way that we're going to change the world is if Jesus is alive in us, and Jesus is the one who ends up changing the world for the better. It's an amazing thing that he does. But this is why it's so important for us to have the right shepherd. We've got to be following the right person. Because if we're not following the right person, we're following somebody else, maybe Doctor Who, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a parent, oh, I don't know, somebody else. But what I know for sure is that one of the people that we typically follow is us because we are so brilliant, because we are so bright, because we have so many great ideas, and, and we're so wonderful. Everybody should follow us, right? We think, and very often that's the way we act. We decide we're going to do something. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't bring it to God and ask God about it. We just do it ourselves because we know better. And very often those things turn out to be the ruination of our lives. And everybody in this room knows what that's all about. And, and, and as we're deciding to follow ourselves, what it results in is it adds stress to our lives. It brings up stress. And that's why David wrote this wonderful psalm, the 23rd Psalm, because the 23rd Psalm helps us think about places where we get stressed and how important it is to, for us to give ourselves to the right shepherd. So for this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the next subject that David brings to the table, uh, which is guilt, but it also has to do with a couple of cousins of guilt, which is grief and grudges as well. 
So we're going to look at the 23rd Psalm, the third verse. This is uh, from the uh, New King James Version. Read it with me, would you please? He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It says God restores us and leads us to walk in right ways. And you get the connection, don't you? Uh, we follow God's lead, and by following God's lead, we're all of a sudden walking in the ways that are right. And everybody in this room, I believe, everybody in this room, everybody that may be watching at home, everybody wants to walk in right ways. The trouble is we often walk in wrong ways, and that's when we find ourselves in trouble. It says God restores us as we walk in the right ways. And restoration is a huge issue. Soul restoration is, is, is a huge issue for us, and I want to invite you to think about it this morning. I, I've just finished a recent uh, book uh, by John Ortberg called Soul Keeping. It's been so profound for me that uh, I'm going to do a message series on it this fall. We're going to do it as a, as a church. We're going to do this little book called Soul Keeping, and Ortberg has helped me think more about my soul and about how important it is to keep my soul intact and keep developing my soul because my soul, your soul, is the only thing that is eternal. Did you know that your physical body is not eternal? All of us are going to die physically, but all of us are going to live either with God or without God, one way or the other. It's about following God and getting our souls restored. And, and the problem with this stress is, is that everybody knows what it feels like to get beat up. Everybody knows what it feels like to be discouraged or depressed or fight despair or fatigue or failure or frustration. Everybody's got scars from the past. Sometimes they are hidden scars. We carry wounds. Uh, we have battle scars. We have emotional garbage that we carry around with us. God wants to take away our emotional pain and our spiritual pain. He wants to restore our souls. God wants to guide us in walking the right path. And that's where it comes down to three things that get in the way of us walking the right path, guilt and grief and grudges. So let's look at the first one, which is guilt. God restores our souls by removing guilt from us. There are at least two things that we have in common about guilt, you and I. One of them is that we all have it. Everybody in this room has guilt because all of us are imperfect. We all make mistakes and we feel bad about them. The second thing is, is, is that we can't get away from our guilt. You've heard the old saying, you can run, but you can't hide. That's true for guilt as well, and you know it. Because we can try to run away from our guilt, but, but we find that, that as hard as we run or as far as we run, the guilt stays right with us. You can mask it, you can run from it, but it's still going to be there. So how do, I, how do I get rid of guilt? Let's look first a little bit at some of the ways that we try to deal with guilt. The first one is to deny it, pretend it doesn't exist. We try to bury it in the past, and you know as well as I do, as I just mentioned, you can't bury it because it doesn't relieve the guilt. You can minimize it, and we've all done that. Well, it's no big deal. Uh, you've, maybe you've been in one of those car wrecks where somebody rear-ends you, they just kind of tap you lightly, you get out of the car, and you go around and look at the back, back end of your car, and your car's got this big dent in it, right? And the other person's car, hey, that looks pretty good. And they get out of their car, and they look at their car, and they say, hey, it looks pretty good, let's go. They just want to run away from the scene. They don't want to give any insurance information because their car's fine, but your car's damaged. You can run... You can minimize it, but uh, it's still there. You can compromise it. Sometimes we lower our standards. 
Uh, you know, if you, if you feel guilty about something, sometimes if we feel guilty about it long enough, we just kind of begin to, to compromise it and say, yeah, I don't believe it's really wrong. It really wasn't a bad thing that I did. Maybe you've read this bad fortune cookie that says, commit a sin twice, it won't seem like a sin anymore. That's a bad fortune cookie. The tenth murder isn't as bad as the first murder, really. If you keep doing something over and over and over again, eventually your conscience will become numb to it, but the guilt will not go away. You can rationalize it. We can say, well, everybody's doing it. You know, that's one of the things that we say. In the first place, let's remember that everybody isn't doing it. And let's also remember that we shouldn't, uh, just because somebody else is doing it, doesn't mean that their behavior makes it right for me to behave that way too. Or you can rationalize it. You know, you can rationalize things, and, and when we rationalize things, you know, one of the things that I've learned about rationalize is that rationalize should be divided into two words, rational lies. That's what rationalize is all about. It's about rational lies, because what we're doing is we're using our heads to try to convince our hearts that it's okay. We use all this gymnastics in our heads to convince ourselves that, hey, this is okay that what we did, we're trying to tell our hearts, we're trying to rationalize it by using rational lies. Or one of the other ways that we, use, that we try to deal with our guilt is we beat ourselves up. Anybody ever done that? You know, you do something bad and you think, wow, what a despicable human being I am, Frank. And the evil one loves to heap on that. The evil one is right on top of that. When we do something bad, we think, wow, what a terrible person I am. The, the evil one is right there whispering into our ears saying, yeah, you really are a rotten person, Frank. You finally, finally admitted it. Glad you see it. Wake up. We self-administer punishment very often because we know that somebody's got to pay for the wrong that we've done. Another thing we do to deal with it is we get depressed. Sometimes we do something bad and we just get depressed afterwards and we get because we've been beating ourselves up and it sets us up for more failure as we go forward. But none of these things are solutions to getting rid of guilt. And you know that, but you also know the answer, right? You know where this is going because the only real answer to dealing with our guilt is to give it to God. We've got to give our guilt to God. Nothing destroys the soul faster than guilt. Psalm 38, verses 4 through 6 says, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. That's a sad passage right there, huh? And it's sad because it reminds us that when we carry around guilt, that's the way we, we perceive life. And when you perceive life this way, you, you, you push that off into everybody that you meet. We've all met people who are just filled with doom and gloom, right? We, we know about those kind of people. When we're, they're approaching us, man, they've got this, this attitude that's about them that's just like, man, they have just been shipwrecked and they're getting ready to shipwreck me too because of the demeanor that we have, the power of guilt. There's only one solution, though. We've got to give it to God. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. Imagine that. The judge, the judge of all creation in this giant courtroom with a big gigantic gavel goes bam on the desk and says, You are not guilty. You are not guilty because God sent Jesus to die just for you, to pay for that guilt, to get rid of it. He has done this through Jesus Christ, who has freed us by taking away our sins. 
Just ask Jesus, and he will begin to take away your guilt. So we're going we're gonna to put it into practice right now, and I want to invite you to bow with me for a moment of prayer, and we're going to pray about guilt. Bow your head and your heart with me, would you please? God, wherever there's guilt in this room, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would prick people's hearts. Make us aware, God, of places where we're guilty, of places where we think, well, I maybe have a little bit of guilt, but maybe it's more guilt than that. God, help us to see those things and to give it to you. You want us to be free from guilt. God, people in this room are, are some people in this room may be feeling guilty because they've done something really horrendous, and they've used it for years to beat themselves down. God, you don't want anybody to live that way. You sent Jesus because you want us to know that, that you don't really care about our past. What you care about is the present and the future. Thank you, God, that you love us so much that you would forgive us. Help us, God, today, right now, deal with our guilt by giving it to you. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Now, another way God wants to restore our souls is to help us get over our grief not all of the things in life that damage us are things that I bring upon myself. Sometimes I have grief because of things that happen or are done to me. Sometimes I have grief when I see other people hurt, and you do that too. The fact is, everybody here knows that sometimes life hurts. Some days you may be lonely. Some days your heart may be broken, or you feel a despair, or you feel all alone. These are all symptoms of grief, this idea of loss, of sorrow. And yes, sometimes we grieve because we've done something stupid. Anybody done that? Right? Sometimes we grieve because we do a stupid thing and afterwards like, wow, that was stupid. Shouldn't have done that. Sometimes we make mistakes that hurt people terribly. Sometimes we hurt the people that we love. We grieve because our dog or our cat or our parrot died, right? When Nathan was little, he had a couple of little animals. There was a hamster and there was a gerbil. And we did funeral services out in the backyard where we buried them, right? And those are traumatic. You lose a dog or you lose a cat. Man, you feel like your best friend has died, right? Because they're so important to us. We grieve over lots of things. We grieve because our son or our daughter is estranged from us, because our mom or dad has died, a sister or brother has died, a child has died, a friend has died, or we grieve because a relationship died, because of divorce, or maybe not because of divorce, but just because of harsh words between friends, and we grieve that relationship that has ended did you know that one of the reasons that God gave us the church is because God wants us, the church, because we are the church, the building is not the church. One of the reasons God gave us the church is because God wants us to minister to one another, and ministering to one another has to do with, with encouraging people when they're down and lifting them up and supporting them in times of need. And the only way for us to encourage and experience the church in that way is to get connected to people in the life of the church. It saddens me, but sometimes we learn in the office that somebody is, is not happy with Lighthouse because nobody came to visit them in the hospital. And, and 99 times out of 100, nobody went to visit them in the hospital because nobody knew about it. Nobody knew about it. And nobody called us 
And, and nobody that they were connected with in the life of the church thought to call us too. Hey, did you know that so-and-so is in the hospital? And, and so somebody has hard feelings because they didn't get visited at that particular time. And it, it's a symptom of a lack of connection. You've got to be connected. That's part of what God, that's part of how God made us, is to be connected to God, but also to be connected to other people, other Christ followers. And you and I got to be in the business of getting connected. We have to take responsibility for that. It's our job to get connected to other people. That's why we have this wonderful little app at Lighthouse. It's called the Lighthouse Fellowship app. If you haven't downloaded it on your phone, don't do it right now. Do it after the service, but download the app. It's got our little logo on it, the L and the F with the teal around it. It's it's a great little resource that tells you all kinds of stuff that's going on in the life of the church. But uh, when you open up the app, it says four things. It says connect, grow, serve, share. And you touch connect, and lo and behold, you'll find a, a, a bunch of ways where you can get connected to Lighthouse. It's the entry point for you. It tells you about the connect class that we do every month that's, that we ask people if they want to become a part of Lighthouse. Go to the connect class. It's a way for you to get connected to a life group. There's no more profound way to, to get connected with other people than to get into a life group of some kind with other people. Now, I know some of you here today may be hesitant about connecting because you're not sure about these Christian people but these Christian people are just as weird as you are. Let me say that to you, right? We're all, we all got our quirks. We all got our idiosyncrasies. We all are in desperate need of God's love. And being in a group with people is, is a way to get connected. And God uses that to fill us and to bless us and minister to us in times of need. Now, David was very acquainted with grief. You, you remember David, one of the uh, chief personalities in the Old Testament, King David. Uh, he committed uh, a, a terrible atrocity with another man's wife. He slept with her. Her name was Bathsheba. And uh, as a result of their sexual encounter, he began to inquire of Bathsheba more and more and grew in fondness for her. And he decided because he was king that he would get rid of her husband so that he could take Bathsheba to his own. And so King David sent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, up to the front lines uh, where there was a very convenient war going on at that time. And, and, oh, by the way, Uriah was killed in battle, and David takes Bathsheba for his own. And he realizes after the fact that it was absolutely wrong what he had done. And he, in Psalm 51, he becomes guilt-ridden, and he confesses his guilt to God. Well, Bathsheba gets pregnant, and when the baby was born, it was very sick. And David grieved. He gets on his knees. He pleads with God. He basically says, God, this baby hasn't done anything. The baby is innocent. I'm not innocent. Punish me. Don't punish this child that's getting ready to be, uh, that's been born very sick. Take me instead of the baby. But you know how that story ends. The baby dies. And when you find, follow, when you follow David's story, you'll find there, there are a couple uh, meaningful things that we can do when we're dealing with grief ourselves uh, in David's model for grieving. And the first thing is that we have to learn to accept what we cannot change. I have to learn to accept what I can't change. When grief hits us, our initial reaction is, this can't be happening. And you've been there. We, we think, well, how, how in the world this could, could this ever have happened? I wish I'd wake up from this nightmare. A little bit uh, later in 2 Samuel 12, somebody asked David after the fact, after the baby has died, why aren't you grieving anymore? And David responds, he says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, 
The Lord may have mercy on me and let the child live. But he is dead now. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I am going where he is, but he won't come back to me. David learned that you've got to accept what you can't change. We get hurt by death, the death of a parent, the death of a friend, whoever it might be. But all the grieving in the world will never restore them to us. We have to learn how to deal with it. Just as a child, when a child begins to learn how to walk, a child falls often. And we laugh and we chuckle. It's so cute when the kids are trying to learn how to walk. But the more they do it, the more proficient they become. We have to be like that in our grief. We have to learn how to walk through our grief. I love the way Don Piper in that little book that he wrote many years ago called 90 Minutes in Heaven. If you've not ever read Don Piper's book, I encourage it to you. Uh, Don Piper uh, was a pastor in Houston and came out of a conference and was in a horrific car accident and pronounced dead at the scene in his car because they couldn't get him out. And for 90 minutes, he was dead. That's why it's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And, and, and Don Piper recounts how he literally went to heaven in that time while his body was still there, but his body hadn't given up. And he, and he came back, essentially. And then he, he lived through that and uh, through several years of horrendous surgeries and such. And one of the things that Don Piper teaches us is that he had to learn about how to live with his new normal. And I love that phrase, his new normal. It's an appropriate thing for us. We can't go back. We can't bring that person back. We can't go back to the life that we had. We have to learn about the, the new life, the new normal that our lives are all about. A second thing that David had to learn to do was how to pray again. We have to ask God to teach us how to pray Sometimes when we experience grief in such a huge way, often our reaction is to becoming numb. We just become numb to life. We become numb to people. We become numb to God even. And once we move from this numbness, I often hear people say that they don't know how to pray anymore. They have found themselves distanced from God, and, and they don't know how to pray. And, and, and I want to say that's not unusual at all. It's, it's part of really the cycle of grief, if you will. But I want to remind you of something I said in the very first week when we were talking about worry, and that is that the antidote to worry is to pray about everything. Sometimes if we don't know how to pray, maybe the thing that we need to do is say, God, I don't know how to pray anymore. God, would you help me learn how to pray? And if you're earnest about that and you ask God that consistently, I have no doubt because I've been there myself. Lord, help me learn how to pray again. I am a testament to the fact that God does show you how to pray again, how to get reconnected to God again. In Psalm 37, one of the things that we find out that David did a couple of chapters later from the 23rd Psalm, in the 37th Psalm, what we find out that David, in his grief, one of the things that he does is he goes back to the temple. He goes back to worship. He pushes himself to get back to the community of faith, to reengage with people. God-loving people who can support and encourage and uplift him. Reconnecting with God is one of the most important things you can do to help yourself through times of grief. A third thing David did was to sift his pain for blessings. Sift his pain for blessings. Now, I would say I'm a novice, but I have on a few occasions taken a, uh, a pan up in northern New Mexico to a couple of the little streams up there, and I've done some panning for gold. Now, I... Uh, I'm not ready to retire yet, so I, that will tell you that, that I didn't really find, I haven't really found anything yet, 
But I know some of the basics about panning, and I know that you gotta you gotta get into the stream where there's there's probably a bend and it was deposited things as they've come down. You dig your pan into this the sand bed and, and pull it up and begin to allow the, the water to pull the sand out so that you might uh, find as the sand is going out, maybe a, a splash of color, uh, or maybe a little bit of a tiny nugget that you would find, because the idea is that gold panning is to, to allow the sand, the lighter material, to be sifted out to find the gold that is lying beneath them. And often when we're struggling in grief, we feel like we've been buried in the sand. We can't see the goodness of God around us in our position that we're in in those moments. We have to sift out the sand and look for the blessings of God because they're all around us. Every single day, they are around us. 2 Samuel 2, verse 12, it says, David went and comforted his wife Bathsheba, and when he slept with her, they conceived a son. He was born, when he was born, they named him Solomon. God had a special love for him and sent word by Nathan the prophet that God wanted him named Jedidiah, which is God's beloved. And this is more evidence that, that, that David was looking for the blessings of his life in the midst of his own grief. Yeah, maybe you've had a great loss, but are you looking for the blessings? You know, when my mom died nine and a half years ago, one of the uh, interesting things, one of the amazing things that my family, my sisters and I and my dad found after my mom died was uh, that God was in the business of planting bouquets all around us. And a bouquet is simply a little flash uh, of a reminder of the person that has died. And I believe those flashes are not coincidences by any stretch of the imagination. They are the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit moving around us all the time to remind us to have eyes that are eternal, to quit making the decision that this person has died and therefore you're not ever going to see them again. Because of Jesus, I get to spend the, the major portion of my life with my mom in heaven. How amazing is that? i got to look for the blessings. And those blessings come in the form of bouquets. I wrote a little devotional that I've used for several years now in my Lenten devotional time, which is what, one of the things I'm doing as a discipline for Lent. Uh, yesterday was about the hummers, right? And if you read it, it's about the hummingbird. And my mom loved hummingbirds. Every time I see a hummingbird, hey, there's mom. I love it at this time of year in the spring when the weather starts warming up and throughout the rest of the time all the way into the summer, there are times where I'll go out in the backyard and I'll find a bouquet of dragonflies in the backyard. Dragonflies. Mom, mom loved dragonflies. And, and I don't know what you call a whole bunch of them, if it's a flock of, of dragonflies or what, but there's a whole bunch of dragonflies out there and the instant I see it, I'm like, man, mom. You're alive. I thank you for the reminder, God, that my mom is alive today, that I, I don't have to be distanced from my mom just because we're separated between heaven and earth. My mom and my heart are one, and we get to be one for eternity. What an amazing blessing. There are people in your life that God has planted in your life to be a blessing to you when you're going through times of grief, to look for the blessings. So let's bow our heads now, and let's pray over the grief. Will you bow your head and your heart with me, please? God, we lift up every person in this room who is grieving today. You know about the reasons why they're grieving. It may seem to be a simple thing, but it causes us despair. God, it may be a really weighty thing that we have trouble getting around. 
God, I pray this day that by the power of your spirit, you would minister to those individuals who are grieving today. For whatever reason they're grieving, God, we pray that they would give that grief over to you, allow you to fill them, to remind them that even though someone may be gone, that because of you in Jesus, they are alive. Help us, God. Help each person within the sound of my voice this day to give that guilt to you. I pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So a third way that God restores our souls is that uh, to let God replace my grudges. My grudges. Grudges come from what other people do to me. I, I may feel guilty about what I've done to somebody else, but when somebody does something to me, it's not hard to develop a grudge. Now, let me say something that you know. Did you know that life isn't fair? Did you know that about life? It is, it is just not fair. People will hurt you, and you will hurt others, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Either way, it hurts How you handle the resentments of life determine whether you will become a bitter person or a better person. And you've heard me use that phrase many times. It's a common phrase in our society. Are you going to let your circumstances determine whether or not you're going to be a bitter person or a better person? We had a great men's breakfast yesterday, as Jason mentioned earlier. It was a grand time, a lot of great guys here, great fellowship. And our speaker yesterday was Josh Holmes. Uh, Josh, we met through the Veterans Freedom Retreat that our church has helped launch. Uh, Joshua is a young man who was in the early part of the war in Afghanistan. He was injured three different times, and as a result of his injuries, he has traumatic, tra- traumatic brain syndrome, uh, a traumatic brain injury, and, uh, and also uh, has braces that he wears that allows him to walk. He wouldn't be able to walk without these steel braces. He's known as the Man of Steel, a delightful guy. And part of what is so amazing about Josh is is his faith in the face of all this bad stuff that's happened. Uh, You heard me say he was wounded three times. Uh, Tragically, he was wounded three times. He had a horrible uh, uh, road that he had to overcome. But his faith carried him through that, and he realized, and he spoke about it eloquently yesterday, he realized that, that he had to make a choice between becoming bitter or becoming better. And I would remind you this day that there is one little difference between becoming bitter or becoming better, and that's the letter I. The I is the difference between bitter and better. I choose. I choose whether or not I'm going to get better or whether I'm going to allow the bitterness to continue to eat my lunch. So what do we do with the hurts that we have piled up, this emotional garbage that we may resent when people come to our minds? Job 5.2 says... Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. Maybe you've heard this statement before, that expecting resentment to hurt another person is like drinking poison and expecting that person to die. That's, I think, an appropriate way to think about resentment. Some of you here today are continuing to allow past hurts deal with your today and with your tomorrow. You are not rid of those hurts from the past. And I don't know what your hurts are. I don't begin to understand all that you've been through. But let me say to you, God doesn't want you to live under the despair and oppression of that past experience that you've had. 
God wants you to be rid of that. It is handcuffing your life. It is crippling who you are by allowing that past hurt to continue to live in your life. I pray that today you'll deal with that challenge, that you'll let it go, that you'll give it to God. Job 18 verse 4 says, You may tear your hair out in anger, but will that cause the earth to be abandoned? Will it make rocks fall from a cliff? So what do we do with our grudges? I would call it, we're going to look a little bit at grudge resolution this morning. The first one is don't seek revenge. Our human inclination is that when somebody does something wrong to us, our inclination is, well, I want to get even with them. I'm going to get them back. That's what we do when we're kids, right? And we do it pretty overtly when we're a kid. But as we grow up, we're more discreet about it. We aren't really upfront about it. But our first inclination many times is, oh, I want to get revenge. Romans 12, 19 says it this way. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me. I will pay it back, says the Lord. Because of sin in this world, life is unfair. Innocent people suffer. Sometimes bad or even evil people prosper in this world that we live in. The Bible teaches us that one day God's going to hold everybody accountable and that you and I need to let go of our revenge, our, our revenge thoughts and attitudes because God's going to set it all right one day. Leave it to God. It's much simpler for us to leave it to God than it is to carry around that, that grudge all the time because it becomes a burden to our lives. So don't seek revenge. The second one has to do with bitterness. I've talked about bitterness already, but listen to the way Paul says it in Ephesians 4. He said, put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other. In the same way, God forgave you in Christ. Civil rights activist Martin Luther King said, bitterness is blindness. Think about that. He said, if, if I allow you to hurt me, and I receive that, it begins to make me bitter, and that makes me blind, blind to the good things, blind to the positive, blind to all the other things that God wants me to see in life. God wants us to take the negative and harmful and hurtful and turn it around and to use it for good and make me a better person, but I can't do that when I'm bitter. So, as we've done before, let's pray over the grudges. Bow your head and your heart with me, please. God, let's just be honest today that some of us in this room have got grudges. God, we recognize right now that they are destructive to us. We pray, God, that we would have the courage today to let it go, to give it to you, to allow your love to replace that which might be bitter in our lives. We pray, God, that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit into everybody's life so that in those places where we have grudges, we would give them to you so that we might be able to live more fully into who you want us to be and to become. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 
So I started with the question, who do you want to be? The Lord is my shepherd. We don't need a self-help book. Oh, there's a thousand of them out there. We don't need another video to watch about how to get my life and act together. We just need a shepherd. The shepherd is Jesus Christ. Let's read uh, the verse one more time from Psalm 23. Read it with me, would you? He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let the church say amen. Let's pray. God, how grateful we are for the gift of your son, Jesus, who we want to be our shepherd. Lord, maybe there's one or two, or I don't know, five or ten, I don't know, somebody watching at home that doesn't know Jesus as their shepherd. God, I believe that all of us in this room search for that shepherd. Some of us have found the resolution of that search in Jesus. God, help us all to commit ourselves to following Jesus and allowing that love, the light of Jesus, to deal with our guilt and our grief and our grudges. We commit them to you this day in the name of the one who came that we might live. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. So we're going to sing uh, right now. Uh, use this as an opportunity to do business with God. Let me challenge you. We took some time to pray over each of those areas this morning. You still holding on to something? Did you say, well, that didn't really apply to me, Frank, because you don't really know about what's going on with my life. No, you know what? It doesn't matter. If you're going to be the person that God wants you to be, you've got to let go of it all. Use this song, use this time as a time to cleanse yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to come forward and pray with somebody, I'll be over here. There, there's likely to be an altar prayer team member that will be over here available to you. You're welcome to come to the altar railing to pray if you, if you want to get on your knees. Sometimes we just got to get on our knees. But whatever the case, take some time to do some business with God while we sing and give those things over to God. Let's stand together as we sing now.